Composer Natalie Holt is an example of what preparation can yield. For years, she's composed for films and numerous TV series on the BBC, PBS, and HBO, among others, along with faithfully assisting the great Martin Phipps. She put in the work, and when her head wasn't down, penciling notes on sheets of music, she was looking ahead to the day when it was her time to break out. That time came, and boy did it ever. In recent seasons of television, which has, for now anyway, usurped movies in cultural significance and resonance, Holt answered the call to compose for exciting new chapters in two of the most storied franchises in the history of motion pictures. For the Star Wars series Obi-Wan Kenobi and Marvel Multiverse series Loki, Holt's striking voice rang through canonical bodies of music that have put forth some of the most recognizable themes of all time. And her voice bellowed, boldly announcing her arrival and belonging in the lineage of each. For Obi-Wan Kenobi, Holt literally took the cue from her hero John Williams, who set the course with his title theme and combined with longtime Williams collaborator Bill Ross to usher us through a faraway galaxy at a time of young Princess Leia and a more youthful Obi-Wan and Darth Vader. For Loki, as half the world was lamenting the supposed conclusion to over a decade of MCU films with Endgame, Holt's music was arguably the most intoxicating element of a show that brought the beloved rascal Loki back into our living rooms. It was a score led by her own John Williams-like statement, with a TVA theme that widened eyes and ears the world over. For all of this, Natalie Holt has been named Composer of the Year by Composer Magazine. And this was over a year when the medium was pushed so far forward by her contemporaries that it practically tumbled. But you really don't get the impression from Holt that her accomplishments were all that exceptional. It was simply the outcome of devotion and preparation. Holt can be as humble as she wants, but those accomplishments were marvelous. She genuinely embraced collaboration while holding on to the instincts that brought her to this big stage and balanced reverence with self-confidence, all with the approach of a consummate professional. The lesson to be taken for all composers aspiring and established might be this. Be more like Natalie Holt, I got you right in the middle of uh, a deadline, did I? Yeah, it's just that, like, get everything finished before Christmas deadline. <laughs> did you ever see that movie Misery? No. <laughs> it's a Stephen King movie about a, an author who gets in a car accident and his quote-unquote number one fan rescues him and takes him to her house. Oh, that's ringing and, loads of bells. Yeah. And in that movie... James Kahn's, his character has a ritual after he's done with a book, which is to have one cigarette and one glass of champagne after he's finished a book. That sounds and, very moderate. 
So I wonder, do you have a ritual when you're done with a score? Do you have anything that you do that like caps it off like that? No, because I, th- I, I never find there's there's never really like that much of a we finished. Yay. Kind of, you know, you, you hand something in for the last episode and you think like I might have finished, but equally they might call me up in the dub and ask me to redo seven cues. So like the actual moment that, you know, you finished is is hard to locate like it is with a book where you're like, I've now finished writing and typing the end. Yeah. yeah. So I, there's I've... no there's no typing the end on a, on the score, right? I guess <laughs> is what you're saying. It never feels that way. Definitely. I mean, yeah. And and things kind of push, and then you think you've finished, and they're like, we've just reopened episode one, and we've decided <laughs> that we want a different end credit music, or I don't know something. Right. So I feel like the time to celebrate is usually. I just find film festivals like. Those have been really, they felt like a real celebration, particularly in the last couple of years where you're hanging out with other composers and you're all just like, like I went to Ghent recently and it was just so much fun. And, um, and you know, like things like um, a premiere if you're working on a film, although TV series don't tend to have those, but um, yeah, those kind of things are a nice moment to celebrate. <laughs> with all your peers. Mm-hmm. Do you have any superstitions related to your work at all? Ooh, superstitions. <laughs> um, I think I've got this, I've got quite sort of old fashioned, like I've always, since film school, I've sh- I'm showing you this now, but obviously we're doing a podcast so nobody can see it. <laughs> I've I watched through the movie and I make cues on a clipboard and then I'll right. do each reel as a different page on a clipboard and then I'll just like, that I find that it helps me visualize it to see it all written out like that. And for some reason, like Google Docs just doesn't doesn't kind of meld with my brain in quite the right way. So I find like having a big piece of paper and just writing ideas and things. Yeah, that's kind of a bit of a ritual is just lots of lots of scribbling. And I've got like notebooks that I fill up with scribbles of ideas for each for every project. And no, nobody else would understand, like, mm-hmm. half of the stuff I'm scribbling either. <laughs> well, yeah, that's that, that counts as a superstition. Yeah. I like that. Pencil and paper. Yeah, a bit of pencil more, and paper. More tangible. Yeah. Yeah, so congratulations on being named Composer of the Year by Composer Magazine. Thank you so much. I'm, yeah, really delighted. Can you put this year into perspective after all that work that you've done at this point? I mean, I got to work with John Williams this year. (laughs) And I got nominated for two Emmys. And it's, yeah, it's been an incredible year. And I, yeah, looking back on it, it, it's... uh, there's been some highs and some lows with, you know, personal life stuff. Um, mm-hmm. So it all kind of balances itself out in the end. But yeah, it's just, it's been an incredible year and yeah, I'm delighted. And what ways are, were you conscious of the grandness of the stage you were stepping onto during the process of your work for these global phenomena franchises? 
that you know millions of people follow. Does that factor in? Does that come to mind when you're working or, or, or do, does it all just come down to doing the work that's in front of you? Um, no, I think I definitely was like a deer in the headlights when I first landed Star Wars um, and just, yeah, the legacy of it. Because I, you know, such a huge fan of John Williams. Like he's basically the reason why I, why I got into film composing because of his scores that I listened to as a child. So um, yeah, there was definitely just a moment of fear and oh my gosh, can't believe I'm doing this and um, just getting my head around it. And then I just, there was so little time that I just had to get on with it and just move forward. <laughs> I think that's what you kind of have to do under pressure is just get on with it. And is what was the extent, if you don't mind me asking, of your relationship with him on the project? Was there any actual interaction and communication and talking about the work and the, and the music? Or was it mostly, okay, John, uh, Mr. Williams, Maestro Williams has given us this piece of music as the guiding light here? Um, so yeah, like, um, he, he only had two weeks because he was on Indiana Jones. And he came on and... and just very quickly, I got through a piano sketch of the Obi theme. And he, I, I think he just wanted to present it over so I knew what key and what it was going to sound like. So I kind of got that through late at night and played it. And I was just thinking, oh, my gosh, like this is the, you know, I'm like one of the first people to hear this theme that's coming out of John Williams's head. And that was kind of amazing. And, you know, he doesn't do demos. He just he doesn't like mock things up so he he sits he writes on an architect table and just hand writes his scores and uses a stopwatch and um and and he just he wrote the obi theme and then like a suite of how the theme could work which was then recorded and it was it was recorded at sony on his 90th birthday because it was still kind of covid times uh I was invited on the Zoom when that was being recorded with Ewan McGregor. I was on it as well. And wow. It was, yeah, it was fun. Like, And he kind of started conducting and then the, the orchestra played him happy birthday. <laughs> oh, that's great. Yeah. So that was really special to be there and, and see him at work as well. And yeah, he's he's a fantastic conductor. <laughs> and he just has such... The, the or musicians have such great respect for him as well. Obviously, he's just... Yeah, he's a legend. Have you seen that film score, the documentary? I haven't. Oh, you would love it, I'm sure. And there's a really wonderful section on John Williams. And really in succession, you just get hit with the best themes and sub-themes of Star Wars. And then they go right into Superman and then Raiders and then E.T. Mm. One after the next. And you have all these contemporary greats talking about how it affected them. And I was just sitting there like overwhelmed. I mean, <laughs> I was like, take it easy. There are too, too many emotions being stirred up here by these themes that I grew up with. Mm -hmm. But I also came to this realization when I was seeing these films when I was younger. As much as I do it now, I wasn't distinguishing the music as something separate from what I was watching at that time in my life. It was completely of a piece. It was just... You just get swept away in the entire combination of things that are there when you're watching something on a big screen. Mm. And at some point, I began to acknowledge the, sco the score's individuality separate, or I could acknowledge it individually from the film. Mm. 
And I wonder what that trajectory was like for you. When did you start noticing that, oh yeah, there were people that actually composed this and conducted this and performed this for for this part of the movie? Um, gosh, that's really interesting. Yeah, I, I don't know. I kind of, perhaps with rose-tinted spectacles, feel like I came away from E.T. singing the theme. I think I did. I, <laughs> I'm fairly sure I did. Like, I can remember having the theme in my head and and just it, seeing those boys taking off on their BMX bikes and then trying to do that with mine and like, like you know, you kind of, <laughs> like I see my daughter, I've got an eight-year-old um, and she just lives in like a fantasy world and if she's watched a movie, she'll be kind of like reenacting it and her, like playing it and it's like she's living the movie in her mind and I don't know I think I think that's kind of what I was doing and then I was always like tinkering around on the piano and and yeah like feeling like stories like writing writing music was like writing little stories I guess or like little songs that are Mm -hmm. snippets of emotion um so I think yeah because my mom was a music teacher so for me all those things have always combined I wonder, do do you feel like movies kind of helped you learn about emotions? And do you feel like your your mother kind of opened your emotional spectrum up through music at all? Yeah, I don't know. I think quite a lot of expressing yourself through music or playing is, is kind of like releasing something out of you, isn't it? So you know, you might kind of pour emotion into a romantic piece or I, I don't know. I don't know if my mum would have ever vocalised those actions in, in such a specific way. But certainly I think movies teach us about human nature and, you know, that's that's when they're really powerful and at their best is when you feel like you've you've gained a life experience from from being immersed in in the world of a movie and it's not just meaningless yeah i i feel like it's 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 a good way to kind of distill certain things that might be too confusing or to have too many variables to identify but somehow if you see it in a film in a scene that's meant to have this kind of moment of realization of of our human nature that's when it gets me and that's why i feel like movies and scores in particular when they go along with it kind of have educated me emotionally. And that music was kind of what planted the seed for you of noticing and and appreciating this whole world of music that's for the moving picture, I guess, right? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, for sure. Was there anything that followed up that kind of intensified that for you? Do you recall anything as you were growing older and learning to play and learning to find your your way into storytelling? Were there other examples like that? Yeah. So in the UK where I lived, there's, there was um, late night movies on channel two. I mean, we only had like four channels. Uh, and I used to 
set the video recorder, like if I saw a movie that looked interesting, like art house movies tended to be, and I'd record them. And then I was kind of a latchkey kid because my mom and dad, you know, they were out working when I got back from school. So I'd kind of get home from school and watch a movie or half a movie. And I remember I watched Days of Heaven, that Terrence Malick movie with Richard Gere. I, I was about 14, I think, when I watched that. And I remember the music just trying to work out what it was. And it was that piece of uh, the fishes, the, the aquarium from the Sanson piece. And then there was some other um, film music in there as well. But I just remember, you know, these these kind of bigger, more complicated narratives and, you know, getting into kind of like Taxi Driver and, and those Coppola films and and Charlie Chaplin and watching these kind of just getting into film, I guess, and, and film history and and just kind of going on that journey with a crappy VHS <laughs> in the 90s. <laughs> yeah. But I think like as a teenager as well, I found film really, because you're in such a weird, vulnerable, emotional place as a teenager as well. And you can, I felt like film was, was like a, a way of understanding the world when mm -hmm. I was grow growing up with those more complicated emotions that you're feeling as well. You know, it's not like E.T., which is just like child, seeing the world through a kind of child's lens. It's it, all those Disney movies. Uh, it, it, it feels like, oh, these are more adult things I'm seeing a window into. And I found that really important as well. You know, as a child, and maybe you can share what it's like from your perspective as a mother uh, of your daughter, there's there's this almost hardwired sense of wonder and imagination and curiosity that children seem to have. And they're open to fascination with these kinds of fantastical stories and worlds. And as an adult, I find that it's, as I was going back and looking back into some of these fables of the Marvel universe and the Star Wars universe, that it there maybe i'm just a little more cynical and uh, as an adult but i don't find it's as easy to lose myself and connect with that sense of wonder and that sense of anything is possible filmmaking how do you access that because you have to provide these types of themes and these types of cues to complement these worlds that you're writing for um i don't know like with Loki, I was definitely just, I felt like I was inhabiting his character sometimes with just kind of like finding that sense of mischievousness and, and fun. And, and I just kind of loved the dynamic of him and, and the Owen Wilson character, Mobius. Um, but like, I was just watching, like on a spotting session, I would just be watching the movie and like, oh, I think I can hear that theme there. And that theme there and I could just kind of hear what the music should be as I was watching it so I don't know but I guess with I guess I had to write kind of a childhood wonder cue for young princess Leia in Obi-Wan Kenobi and I found that quite tricky because okay so it's princess Leia and you know we we don't want her to be too girly and we want her to sort of be modern but you know she's kind of a she's on Alderaan and it needs to have this and this and this. And there's quite a lot of, you know, a lot of voices with a lot of opinions about what the scene needed to convey. And I did end up just 
I sort of said to my daughter, like, well, how do you think, like, because she, she'd watched all the Star Wars movies with me in the lockdown. Um, I was like, what do you think, like, young Princess Leia's theme would sound like? And she was just like, like this. And she she kind of <laughs> hummed the Princess Leia theme to me. So I, my daughter actually should be down on, as, on a cue. <laughs> uh, as, on, as a credit. <laughs> yeah, she just, like, whispered it. Na, 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 na. And I was like, oh, that's nice. That's so cool. Yeah. There you go. really do rely on picture and writing to picture. But I've also heard you mention that sometimes things come to you as you're walking down the street or as you're doing something, a little something in your head will arise and you connect it to something that you're working on. I- I'm curious about this idea, though, of walking and, and engaging with your physical environment and how that might uh, influence what you write. And I, I remember speaking with this musician who... Have you heard of the band Animal Collective by any chance? I love the Animal Collective. Oh, cool. <laughs> yeah, I used to listen to them so much, like like years ago. And pan, the Panda... Yeah, Panda Bear. Yeah, Bear has done a solo album recently. Yeah, yeah. very cool. I love Animal Collective. Uh, me too. One of my favorites. And um, Avitar, who is Dave Portner, he was talking about when he moved to L.A., when he was writing this solo album called Eucalyptus and there's so much eucalyptus in the air and especially out towards the kind of, you know, less populated areas and by the ocean. And he was just talking about how that and the, the rhythms of the water um, really inspired the music he was writing. And I wonder if you have examples of that, like you're, you're thinking of things between LA and, and Kent Mm -hmm. or even London and I'm wondering how those two environments do you do you find that they impact your mood as you approach writing or your state of mind or anything like that? Is that something that happens with you that you notice? Yeah, I mean, I think I don't know about like smells or something, but certainly like in the last <laughs> year or so, you know, it's like your personal life just it's like you can't turn things off like that are happening around you like um when I was working on Star Wars my dad had a like a heart attack and was in hospital and you just it's like uh, I think that that you kind of bring emotional states that you're suffering with into your work as well and and sometimes I don't know I guess you can just bury yourself in work and switch it off but I find like it's like a therapy to kind of work through those things sometimes with what you're working on um Mm -hmm. so for me it's kind of like what's going on in my life is often I kind of think back of like oh what was I doing when Loki came out and what was going on in my life and it feels like it's kind of infused into the score somehow and like it sort of when when I think of projects I think of the times in my life as well 
as, as the location. But mm-hmm. um, it's so funny that you talk about the Animal Collective because I feel like their style of composing really influences me. Oh. It's like a tapas of... of or, or I remember the books as well. Like these, these, these kind of... Oh, the books. I used to love that. When I was at film school, I was like, I love it. It's like a collage of like like a bit of Beethoven string quartet and someone reading a poem and put it backwards with something on a tannoy in Japan. And it's like, I kind of, I find those things. It's like a mood board of inspiration and like trying things together. And and, um, yeah, those two, those two um, bands really I- inspire me. There are really opportunities, I suppose, to really be that liberal and, mm. and kind of accepting or inviting of all, all kinds of elements, vocal and otherwise, I suppose, is, is more constricting when you're writing for, for film and television, right? Not, you can't, not quite as many opportunities to just play jazz in that way. I guess so, yeah. I'm always... Um, Asking who the sound designer is or like, oh, if you don't have a sound designer, I've got a really good friend who I went to film school with who I'm always recommending Um, because I think it's really fun to kind of collaborate with the sound designer. And like, um, I don't know if you know the conversation of the Francis Ford Coppola movie Mm -hmm. and the David Shire score and Walter Murch and those kind of those kind of the collaboration between all of post-production and I just think those those are the best, most creative times when you're being inspired by what everybody else is up to as well and, and using frequencies and or steering clear of frequencies that the sound design is using and and just yeah, creating kind of multi dimensional experience for people. Yeah. I, I it's a great example with um what Shire did with the conversation because you do have those very mechanical moments of recording and being quiet and picking up on the sounds of your environment and how his music must have paid attention to that as he wrote that very delicate piano score. Mm -hmm. So I imagine if there's an opportunity where you can work on a film that's maybe more abstract in that way that you would like to do that in order to be inspired by not only a script, but other elements. Yeah, definitely. And I love the fact that that score as well, David Shire apparently just recorded his piano ideas on a little, you know, uh, dictaphone Uh and then sent them over to Coppola and was like, here's my idea. And then he recorded them with like a giant orchestra and Coppola had already like put those into the edit. He was like, no, you're good. Like, I'm happy with these. Um, So that's kind of yeah, it's kind of nice to strip things back to basics sometimes and, and just, yeah, sometimes your first response is, is your best one.
you have an instrument you want to learn still or do you feel like it's too late or do you is there something that you want to add to your repertoire so to speak and I know you're strings based but is there something you'd like to take on and add to your repertoire as a performer and composer I would love to play the piano better I think that's I just oh I seem stuck at a certain level and just can't seem to break through the barrier of like improving um even like in lockdown I was I was doing every day I was practicing Bach and I'd kind of get to a certain point with all the pieces that I'd be kind of like you know just I can't get through a piece without making mistakes and yeah I think maybe it's a technique thing I should go and have some piano lessons so that's on my list and like I'd love to be able to play the cello but um I'm just when you switch over from like that violin hold round you sort of go downwards and round with the bow and it's like for some reason that shape just feels completely alien and wrong to me so I'm a I'm a terrible cellist but um when you and then when you're recording with like Caroline Dale <laughs> you just think there's no point me learning the cello because I could never compete with this incredible sound that um the best cellists make but I mean would you be up for committing time to it to learn those things better or is it impractical um at this point no I definitely think I think I'm sure that the being becoming better at the piano will be on my uh new year's resolutions um (laughs) but then you know yeah I don't know week two into January all those usually fall by the wayside don't they (laughs) they do they do typically I wonder if this is a, a phenomenon or occurrence with with composers when they get to this level of working as much as you have and constantly rewriting for different episodes and multiple projects at a time do you still have these moments where you're literally just soaking in how profound a piece of music or a score is or even something that you do and just stop to appreciate the real art of it. Can you pick out one or a couple of those moments where you just said, okay, this is really speaking to me. This is why I do what I do. This is why I love doing what I do from a very pure level. I you, I kind of always wanted, you know, you hear about the Cannes Film Festival and then you're like, um, oh, I, I don't know. I didn't feel like I could go unless I had something there. And then one year my friend was like, you should just come and just, it just, if you've got, you know, an IMDB rating, you can apply. And then once you're there, you apply on the lottery of like tickets to go and see films. And it just feels like a celebration of film. And I got tickets to see A Hidden Life. And as I said before, like Terrence Malick was one of my teenage, like, you know, noticing more adult emotion in film and um, so yeah, A Hidden Life, and it was the James Newton Howard score, and it's it's just so powerful, such an incredible movie, and it's it's like seeing it in that huge cinema at Cannes, and the, it's the world premiere, and Terrence Malick is there, and that I just found that really overwhelming, and I was like, this is why I'm doing what I'm doing, like I'm totally inspired by cinema, and and I heard this violin solo in A Hidden Life, played by James Innes who's this incredible um, Canadian soloist. And I contacted him afterwards, actually, and I was like, I just, this blew me away. And 
I went to a concert of his in um, Belgium when I was there and then he agreed to come and play on Obi-Wan Kenobi. So those violin solos in Obi-Wan Kenobi played by him. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was really fun. And he came and led the orchestra for a day as well, which the musicians loved because, yeah, he's just a, a kind of a inspiring soloist. And he, as a Star Wars fan, was kind of up for coming and playing with us for, for the day. Um, That's so cool. So yeah, that was that was a really nice moment to have that experience and then be able to get to work with him. That's great. Yeah, I just sometimes I wonder if composers are just have their head down so much that they don't stop to actually appreciate what's around them and even just listen to me. So I, I've heard some composers say I actually don't even really listen to much music during the time I'm working on a project because I'm just always around music and always have something in my ear. Mm, but no, I, I think but it's I, like yeah. film, though. I think that's the thing. It's like watching films is is the thing that's inspiring. Yeah, because that's why well, we're I doing to, what we do. <laughs> I wanted to ask you about that particularly too, because we're very clearly in this period of time where there is a a real shift going on in cinema and movie making, and. As much as it must be nice to be these engines, these musical engines for these IP universes, do you worry about the trends in the kinds of movies not being made because there's such a polarization of mega budget, big IP uh, movies and shows and quite small ones? And the middle ground is sort of being uh, lost. And do you worry about that? Do you worry about where movie making is going and as a result of that what might happen to you know kind of lower key more um impressionistic types of scores yeah um definitely i think the middle ground is being eaten up you're completely right like it's like low budget movies or huge ones and and i kind of wonder if it's People people want long-form TV more. They want to kind of... They don't just want to engage in an hour and a half, 90 minutes of a film. They want they want 12 hours of time with, with characters that they like. And so there's this sort of filmic... And I think a lot of TV, like the Emmys and the Oscars, like what's the difference? Sometimes you hear scores and you think these... They're just... There's no difference between these two um, categories anymore. Like a TV score and a film score are the same thing that they're, they're just um expanding so yeah i think there's like an interesting growth in the quality of music being written for these for tv shows which is exciting for me mm-hmm. as that's <laughs> where i'm working can see that they there there's there's really interesting things still happening like um daniel hart's proven with a and a24 are, are a company that make really incredible um movies and you know fox searchlight they, if you look at the crop the crop of movies this year like um 
Bones and all, I just watched, I loved that movie. I just, I think, then you still see posters for it all around LA and I, I had a bit of like um, score envy. <laughs> <laughs> I was just thinking, oh, I'd love to score this movie. This is just, you know, it's like a a kind of musical dream. Like it just felt like such a, um, it's like this sweet, horror story and it, it was such an interesting tone but I love yeah I loved what they did with it bringing in a, another example of a, of a film that is getting a lot of attention right now and I think rightly so is Tar have you seen Tar I haven't seen it yet um I did see Hilda um last week and t- got to kind of hear her she gave a talk about it which was really interesting and yeah it, it sounds it's kind of an unusual one because she said you wouldn't notice that it had a score because yeah. um, she wrote the score for it before filming and a lot of it was played on set and set the rhythm and and um, and then in the edit they turned it down so that you can you can't really hear it. Um, and then but something that happens unfortunately, right? Well, to, I think to... it was it was a decision a sort of storytelling decision and then the Hilda's released a um Deutsche Grammophone record that is like a compendium to the movie so she said you can kind of listen to this after you've seen the film and Mm -hmm. um so that's quite cool to have a a score that you can discover afterwards (laughs) yeah there was a lot of restraint in the score certainly Mm. in that film but there was something mentioned by Kate Blanchett's character Lydia Tarr, there's a a moment when she's talking about intention in what you're composing and making the overarching kind of claim that if the intention isn't there and the intention isn't interpreted and felt with immediacy, then it's worthless, kind of. Mm. And I just thought about that, like the parallel of concert, orchestral or chamber music and music made for film. There's an inherent intentionality in film music, obviously. Mm-hmm. But am I wrong to say that that's more ambiguous in concert music? And in your experience, how does concert performance music and film music differ in that way of intentionality? I mean, that's kind of a more... That's Sorry to give you that question. That, <laughs> that's kind of loaded, isn't it, that one? But I just thought that that was interesting. I guess it's it's like finding meaning... It's finding meaning in something. And, and for me, I grew up playing violin, viola in orchestra. So I'd always be playing Mahler symphonies and hearing his intention in, and, and stories in, in what he was writing. And I feel like sim- a, a symphony kind of tells its own story. And then there's just pieces that, you know, Boulez or, you know, Stockhausen like, or Ligeti or something. It felt at home in The Shining but it didn't make any sense to me playing it or being in a concert where there wasn't anything to grab hold of. It just felt too abstract for me to enjoy. And I suppose I'd start to create narratives for, for, for everything that I'm listening to. Cause that's just the way my brain works. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, for me, I suppose as a composer, I just feel like, yeah, you have to commit. I think that's when I feel like my own music doesn't work is when I've just, I'm just lost and I'm just I'm not engaging with the story and I'm being asked to do something I don't understand and you know and my best at my best I think my music 
is is committed and intentioned and and it's like I've played something and I've committed to it and and it's bold and and I think that's when it works best. So yeah, there's there's things we can learn from concert music. I think I'm really I'm really fascinated by um stand-up comedy and like getting a laughter, like like telling a joke and making a whole audience laugh. It's such a pure I think stand-up comedians are, you know, and the way you I read um I'm reading Judd Apatow's book at the moment. Um and how they work and craft at these things which, you know, are quite throwaway, but how much work goes into that and understanding what it is that makes people laugh and I feel like we're, we're doing the same thing as composers but you know without the without the jokes So you were in a snowstorm yesterday. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> I noticed I saw this post that 12 people got marooned in a pub and couldn't get out overnight because of the snowstorm. Because <laughs> they got too drunk to be able to open the door to get out. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> right. That was the excuse. Yeah, we couldn't go anywhere. Have you gotten your tree? How, how Christmassy is it feeling around your house now? It's feeling very Christmassy. Yeah. Yeah. We, my Getting daughter, ready. Yeah, we, my daughter's really um, big into Christmas. Like she wants it up on the first of December, so <laughs> it's kind of maximum tree time. Um, right, maximum tree time. Yeah, and then it doesn't come down until a month later, right? <laughs> I, I try and get <laughs> it down pretty quick. I find it a bit depressing. Like once Christmas is done, I'm like, I'm, I, I don't want to see. The tree now. It's a dirty reminder of all the overeating. <laughs> <laughs> Correct. Um, okay, so when is it to when do you start your Christmas movie watching? At um, what point? I mean, Annie and I like we have a Saturday night movie night sometimes. We watched the um Spirited, the new Christmas movie with uh Ryan Reynolds and Will Farrell. Right. Uh last Saturday night. So that felt quite Christmassy. <laughs> and what what are your favorite ones? Do you have any favorite Christmas films that you like see on Christmas Eve like I do? So, well, in the UK, they in the 80s, they used to always play um, The Wizard of Oz on Christmas Eve, which isn't even a Christmas film, really, is it? Yeah. But I always associate really. that movie with Christmas time. I, it used to be a Christmas story when I was young. That was my ritual like Christmas Eve movie and then it and then somewhere along the line I turned over to It's a Wonderful Life and I still cry uncontrollably at the in the last scene Aww. when they're all when they all start singing and everyone's brought him money and you know he's not in such despair and all of his friends have come to his rescue and then his daughter's like every time a bell rings an angel gets his wings and then he's like that's right 
And he winks up at the sky. He's like, attaboy, Clarence. And every time he says, attaboy, Clarence, I just start crying. It just, it's, it's automatic. <laughs> well, do, you, do you cry in any films, Christmas or otherwise, like that? Um, like automatically? I really, well, we watched, uh, we, I, I think the Will, Will Farrell elf movie, I, only st- I watched for the first time when my daughter was, I don't know, two, three or something, four. I, I, recently, anyway. I didn't see it when it came out at the time. Um, and I just love that one, like where he's eating bowls of, um, you know, sugar M&Ms and stuff and like making spaghetti with those kind of um, strawberry silly string stuff. Just, just really dumb things, and and just yeah. I, I, I love having a, a laugh at that kind of. Um, so you're you're more susceptible to to humor in movie. Would you say that what's what emotion, what reaction is your favorite one in a film? Fear, humor, or sadness? Oh well, I, I guess I, yeah. I was still I was still on the Christmas movies. Like oh, yeah. for me, I think at Christmas I'm I'm down for a laugh because I had so like. My grandparents died when I was five and seven, like the day before uh, Christmas Eve and Boxing Day, like the day after Christmas. So Christmas has always been a real downer for my family. Like I just, as far as I can remember, it's been, you know, everyone's like visiting graves and crying and wondering what funeral planning and stuff. So my childhood Christmases were kind of so filled with sadness I didn't really I, I kind of needed a laugh if mm-hmm. if that makes any sense um so yeah t- like I, I, and I think generally with movies depends on your mood I mean if I'm it, it depends if you kind of need uplifting or well, yeah it, I don't know you kind of reach for different things on depending on how you're feeling and you know if you've got a couple of hours to watch a movie Sometimes you just want some escapism and, and you know, reach for the Marvel or universe or something. I think a lot of people lean into that because they just want completely removing from reality. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, yeah, different yeah, I know what you mean. for different folks. Well, I haven't even gotten my tree yet. So I'm going to get my, my standard Charlie Brown stump of a tree and that'll be good for me. I love that. That theme from um, Charlie Brown Christmas. I think that's because there's a slight kind of sadness in that, like a nostalgia. I I always love that one when it comes on. I was reflecting recently that I don't think there are any kind of seminal Christmas songs that have entered into the canon for for like quite a number of years. That's true. You know, you hear those like Slade and John Lennon and... um, yeah, there's the Pogues and all of those ones, but it's like, I think Mariah Carey, I feel like that's the kind of latter end of it. And it, we're, la- we're missing, like, so people need to get writing some Christmas hits. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Maybe you can. Um, maybe you can get on a score uh, for a Christmas film. That's another thing that I think has dropped off a lot in the past, I don't know, 20, 30 years, is where, where are the great Christmas films? They seem to all be locked in the past. And there hasn't been a real amazing one. Although I do like that one with Kristen Stewart uh, that came out on Hulu a couple years ago where she's in a relationship with her girlfriend and her girlfriend's parents don't know that they're in a relationship together. And it's kind of like coming out on Christmas, essentially. Cool. 
Um, I can't remember the name of it, but it was very good. That sounds like one to stick on. Maybe we should, yeah, try a new one on Christmas Day. That's a good one. What is? Where do you come out on the holiday? Do you like the holiday? I don't. I don't know. I remember not liking it at the time and finding it a bit too schmaltzy. But I watched it recently, and I was like, oh, it's quite sweet. <laughs> it is. <laughs> yeah. And you know who does the score for that? Hans Zimmer. Oh, oh yeah, of course. It's it's one of his unusual, you know, scores that kind of slip through the cracks for most people who follow him. But it's really great. And he released uh, he released a white vinyl um, album of it a couple years ago that I, of course, purchased. He's very yeah. He's uh, versatile. He's a wide range. He says that. He has no idea where music comes from, and he's always afraid that someone's going to come along and turn off the tap. What do you What do you think about that comment? <laughs> well, I think I mean, um, yeah, it's kind of. I, I think that's why you have to really choose the projects carefully and and make sure that the story that you're telling is something that you're really emotionally interested in and invested in. Because I think it is. There's so so many challenges to being creative. So it's like having the nuts and bolts there of just a genuine interest in the story. I think that's sort of something hopefully can can ward off the older writer's block. Mm-hmm. That mystery is, I think, part of the magic of it is not knowing the source and just kind of you have to find it and it and it's ephemeral. It comes and goes and you have to grab onto it when it's there and then let it go when it's not kind of thing. Definitely. Yeah. And oh, there's, it's just... That feeling when you feel like, oh, I've cracked a theme. That's like so satisfying. And it can be so miserable when you just know, oh, just like sitting there day after day and not being not sure if you've cracked it yet. That's that's sort of torture. (laughs) Well, I look forward to speaking with you again someday. And again, happy holidays and enjoy. I hope you have a wonderful Christmas. I know it's a complicated holiday, but... Thank I hope you. you enjoy. I hope you enjoy it. Oh no, it's fine. I'm. I just sound like, I sound like the Grinch or something in, in my <laughs> answers. Like, oh, Christmas is about people dying, and like people are gonna think I'm crazy. But you have to be honest. <laughs> well, it's complicated. It brings up all kinds of uh, the whole gamut of emotions. I yeah. think. Yeah. Um, but I, I, you know, I have bittersweet uh, feelings about it myself. So yeah. I understand. But I do love the moments where those quintessential moments where I hope we get some snowfall like you did. Oh, we've it's just so ne- nice. We've yeah. just nearly missed a white Christmas for the past 15 years. It either rains or it's, you know, two, three degrees too warm for snow or something. But hopefully this year. I think it will be melted by actual Christmas Day. But it's nice for the kids to have had a bit of a Christmassy snowball fight time. But <laughs> Yeah, and it's. I think maybe that's why those movies are so important because, you know, maybe the real life version of Christmas is is like a bit of a shit show. But that's yeah. why we can kind of pretend that there's like this ideal version of it somewhere out there. <laughs> right. <else is> having. <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> well, we're all drinking eggnog and listening to Bing Crosby and candles are lit and that sort of thing. Yeah, although I love that Bing Crosby syrupy syrupy jazz it's so do i so do i yeah maybe watch eyes wide shut that's like a very against the grain (laughs) christmas film oh i have haven't watched that for years doesn't it end in an orgy (laughs) nearly yes there is a there is an orgy set in a mansion Mm. somewhere in 
Westchester, it seems like. <laughs> but it is, it, it, I feel like it does qualify as a Christmas film. So Okay. Mm-hmm. And Die Hard as well. <laughs> yeah, I don't think I've ever actually watched that. Well, that's, some say that's the best Christmas movie of all time. Okay. Oh, well, it's time to expand those, the repertoire. Yes. yes, indeed. All right, Natalie, it's been great to talk with you, and I hope yeah. to talk with you again soon. Yes, definitely. Thank you so much. <laughs>